0: Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers.
1: And I'm Jelena Sofranievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect. How our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present not least in the streets.
0: In this walk, Labouring City, we're exploring the east end of London, where much of the real work of the city was done, and which provided a home for the generations of immigrants who have given the city its dynamism. More recently, it's been a target for gentrifiers and developers. None of them have been entirely welcome. And you can still see the fault lines, even close to the old city wall, where we'll be walking and where the transformation is almost complete.
1: As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself. And don't be surprised if you sometimes find your way blocked. Cities are always changing and building never stops. But it should be easy enough to find your way around the obstruction and get back on track.
0: In this second episode, we'll be tracing the way in which the East End has always been a magnet for migrants. Pushed from the English countryside and from abroad, pulled by London's insatiable demand for labour, seeking to better their fortunes. We'll see how often those hopes were frustrated as jobs grew scarce, as wages were reduced, as the market did its work. And we'll witness the attempts of some of those, with power, money, and influence, to mitigate its worst effects. We're starting the story at Whitechapel Station, which will give us a snapshot of where the East End is now and a sense of the layers on which it's been built. You can find it on the District, the Hammersmith & City, the Overground, and now also the brand-spanking-new Elizabeth Line. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Whitechapel Station on a busy main road. Looking right, we can see the city beginning to loom at the end of the street. Right in front of me, I've got Tower Hamlets, Town Hall, and on either side, Market Stalls. Standing here, however noisy it is, gives us a chance to dig down a bit and begin to understand the waves of movement, the piles of labour, the work of the market which has made the East End what it is. First, behind us, we've got the station. It's been comprehensively rebuilt in the last few years to accommodate the new Elizabeth line. It'll eventually allow the internationally mobile creative to get here from Heathrow in less than half an hour. It's worth going inside the station and appreciating the scale of the project. London's always needed better infrastructure than it has, and the East End in particular has never enjoyed good connections. So, of course, with this whizzy new piece of transport, RT flats are going up around us at nearly half a million a pop. It wasn't always like this, though. The overground network only got joined up in 2007. Whitechapel only got plugged into that in 2010, which provided a way to get around town. The underground was here before then, but for much of its history, the station was often a terminus for lines running through the city. This is where they stopped, or a stop on lines connecting the city to the coast and, of course, to the docks. The stations initially opened. There were two of them. They were competing private companies. They start up in the late 19th century. That's also when the market comes into being. Right now, there's 20 million of funding going into this to improve the market, to improve the road, to improve the public space. Already though, the market actually is recycling all its waste, it's been doing that for 10 years or more. Back in 1997, it was designated a conservation area, people beginning to realize that there's heritage here to maintain. The market we see today is largely dominated by Bangladeshi traders. They've been here since the 1980s. If you glance at the station name, you'll see there are two scripts, only one of which is English. And even before that, back in the early 20th century, the market's getting regulated. There are nuisance traders in operation. The local authorities are beginning to crack down. It starts, though, probably, we don't know exactly, in the late 19th century. And at that point, it's largely Jewish immigrants who are trading here. But before the station, before the housing, before the market, there were open fields. And the first thing here is the thing across the street, which is, in fact, originally a hospital, from 1750. It's established a little further west, near Old Street in 1740. Its aim is to, quote, provide relief of all sick and diseased persons, and in particular, manufacturers, seamen in the merchant service, and their wives and children. We've met the seaman before in the previous episode in this walk when we were talking about the docks. The problem is that all existing hospitals, voluntary hospitals in London, are further west and there's a growing population here which needs servicing. So they lease some land from the city in what are then open fields and they build a hospital. The first bit of it, the central bit in front of us, only has capacity for 200 patients and then it keeps growing. It sets up a medical school and there is more or less continuous building from now on. There's capacity for 650 in the late 19th century. The population's exploding, you need more beds. There's 1,000 by the early 20th century. Fast forward, the Queen visits and it becomes the Royal London Hospital in 1990. A few years after that, in 2007, they start building the blue glass towering monstrosity you can see behind it. But the 14th and 15th floors of that are never fitted out. The money has run out, at least until COVID. And as you can see in front, the original hospital buildings, these brick buildings in front are now being converted to a new civic centre for Tower Hamlets. So we've got the outline of the story to come. We've got the gradual early modern transformation of countryside outside the city walls. In the 19th century, we have explosive growth as people flock to the city. There are some attempts to keep things moving as they do. More recently, we've got the transformation of the East End through piecemeal government intervention and voracious private capital. But there are many wrinkles along the way, and the story goes even further back. To unpeel the layers, though, we've got to move on. We're turning right from the station, and we're going to walk past the stalls to the first set of traffic lights. That's a pedestrian crossing, which will take us over to the hospital side of the street. So you can see Court Street on your right. We're turning left here and crossing the road. We're then turning right again and taking the next left. This is Turner Street. So we're just walking down Turner Street through the Royal London Hospital. On our right, we've got a strange matte black chimney soaring into the sky. This gives us a sense of how the hospital has continued to develop over time. You can see kind of modern buildings on your left, older buildings on your right. We'll point out a few as we go. On our left, as we're coming down Turner Street, we have a kind of red brick and cream brick building. This was actually the medical college, initially started up in 1886. And on our right, a slightly darker brick building. This is the outpatients department, a little later in 1903. We're coming to the end of the street, and we're going to turn right. If you glance left, you'll see a church, which became the medical school library. Behind that, the towering glass blue blocks of the new Royal London Hospital across the road, a Pub, but we're turning right. turned right we're actually on stepney way now we're passing the outpatients department on our right the building beyond that is slightly later it was originally the department of massage and medical electricity from 1936 we're crossing the street new road you can see in front of you and head towards the buildings of the city you can see in the distance So we've crossed New Road. We're now actually on Fieldgate Street. We've got bubble tea shops, coffee shops on our right. Just beyond those, we've got Tayabs, maybe the oldest Punjabi restaurant in London, great lamb chops. But then on our left, we've got a series of streets which look obviously residential. These are all part of the London hospital estate and they were built up at different times for slightly different purposes. The first street we come to is Romford Street on our left. If you glance down there, you'll see Fieldgate mansions. We're not turning there, but this was developed in the beginning of the 20th century as high-density flats. But other streets do other things. The next street is Parfit Street, a slum that was turned into three-storey model dwellings in the 1890s. At this end of the street, there are even older houses, some from the 1790s. And then the last of these streets on the left in the London Hospital Estate, Settle Street terraces become tenements so you have buildings like Davis's Terrace again in the 1890s housing being built up to accommodate this swelling population having gone past those streets we want to turn our attention to the right So just beyond the shops on the right, just beyond Tayab's, kind of opposite Parfit Street, we've got towering tower house, a different kind of housing. 816 single men, a hostel built in 1902, now since, of course, turned into flats. Then a gaping hole, a different kind of thing going up here, an apartment hotel with some very fancy plans, but a lot of consultation with the local community. And then directly beyond that, the East London Mosque. It wasn't the first thing here. In the middle of the mosque site, on your right, you can see a plaque saying that this marked the site of the Great Synagogue, established in 1899, rebuilt in 1959. The street already had several smaller ones, so this one was the Great One. There was a house in front, there were separate entrances for men and for women. But over the course of the 20th century, attendance declines as the Jewish community moves out. Services stopped in 2009. It's actually purchased by the mosque in 2015. By that time, the mosque is already in existence. It's kind of surrounding the synagogue. The mosque fund was initially established back at the beginning of the 20th century. In 1940, they have three houses down on Commercial Road to the south of here. But in the early 70s, with Bangladeshi immigration, there's a growing community. And so the main building on Whitechapel Road is built in 1985. That has capacity for 2,000. Then in 2004, they built the London Muslim Centre, 5,000 now. And then on our street, on Field Great Street right here, the Mariam Centre in 2013, taking the total mosque capacity to 7,000. We've just heard a call to prayer. Now, as we come to the end of Fieldgate Street, across the road, you can see the Whitechapel Bell Foundry, a much older building, obviously. starts up in the 15th century. It's here from 1738. It takes over the Artichoke Inn. If you spend a little bit of time here, you can see the full complex. There's an 18th-century shop front and the house of the master of the foundry. Here we're looking at the actual foundry itself. It produced the Liberty Bell in 1752, Big Ben in 1856, but it closed in 2017. The bells are still made, but they're made elsewhere. And in 2021, the Secretary of State approved some plans to turn the whole thing, of course, into a boutique hotel. We're facing the foundry, we're turning left, and we're going to take the next right on Mulberry Street. So we've turned right on Mulberry Street. It's a short street, it's a quieter street. Before the war, this was very much a Jewish community. There's a Jewish reading room here, there are two synagogues, there are a tiny little street of houses off to the right. But again, bombing in the Second World War changes things. At the end of the street on our left, we've got a German Roman Catholic church, St Boniface, as well as a building next to it. The church starts up in 1809 again in our previous walk on the docks. We've heard about the German sugar refiners who come in the 18th century. This church is here from 1862, this version of it built in 1959. At that point, though, the zoning for this area, the council says that it must be industrial and commercial. So on the other side of the street, on our right-hand side, we've got some workshops built by the London County Council in the early 60s. At the end of the street, we're crossing the road and heading directly into the park. So here we are in Altab Ali Park. Behind us, we've got the bell tower of St. Boniface, which we've just passed. On the other side of the park, we've got Whitechapel Road. We've already met most of the main players of our walk, but it's also clear that the East End today continues to jumble them together. Development in London is always piecemeal, not wholesale. Here in Altabali Park, we have a chance to pause and assemble the layers to tell the story forward in time. The first thing here is a Roman road, now Whitechapel Road. It connects the port, the Roman port, Londinium, to their first capital, now known as Colchester. By the 13th century, a millennium later, you have a chapel here, a chapel of ease for travellers on the road out of London. By the 14th century, it becomes a parish church. St Mary Matfellon, rebuilt in the late 17th century. Why? Because by the 16th century, London and Essex are developing. There are numerous coaching inns on the way out of town. You're beginning to get industry building up, processing largely beer, beef, skinning, tanning and manufacturing. We've just seen the bell foundry. So already given the community in the 17th century you've got some early philanthropy. You've got a rector of a local church, a Mr. Davenant. He bequeaths a school to educate 40 boys, 30 girls. That's a little further back down the street. But again it's in the 19th century that Whitechapel is transformed. Commercial Road is built at the beginning of the 19th century, connecting the city to the docks, cutting through the communities that exist. It surfaced with granite, interestingly, in the late 1820s because there is so much wear going on. Then you've got the canals in the 1830s, a little further to the north. You've got rail in the 1840s. The coaching inns close. There's no demand anymore for that. The population is displaced as transport goes in. It's augmented. People here cram into what's left. Middle-class homes become lodging houses. By the late 19th century, Whitechapel has become the epicentre of a stereotyped East End, as we'll see in a minute. The chapel itself survives into the 20th century. It's damaged in the war, it's demolished thereafter. We're actually sitting on a bit of the old floor plan here, and you can see in the park there are graves. But then in the 1970s comes a new wave of immigration. This time it's Bangladeshi. There's a civil war, as what becomes Bangladesh separates from East Pakistan. There's genocide. There is independence, but also a flood of people overseas. Many of them come here. They're met by racism, they're met by racist attacks, including in 1978, Altab Ali, a 25-year-old clothing worker, he's murdered in Adler Street, not too far away, by three teenagers. Ten years later, in 1989, this park, the churchyard of what was once a chapel of ease, is renamed in his memory. And as we look around, we can see monuments to its past. We're going to walk out through a gateway. If we glance over there now, we can see that it's a combination of elements. It combines kind of English architectural tradition, perpendicular style, as well as Bangladeshi elements. Over in the next corner, we've got a copy of a monument in Dhaka, the Shahid Minar. It's a monument of five students who were killed back in 1952 during the movement that Bangla, The language spoken by people in Bengal and in what becomes Bangladesh is included as a state language in Pakistan. But of course, time moves on. We can see around us also different kinds of things, which are noted in the early 2000s by the heroine of Monica Ali's Brick Lane. She passes through here on her way from the estate on which she lives to our south, up further north. She comes to Quote, the brief green respite of Altab Ali Park, where the neat pale faced block of flats had picture windows and a gated entrance from which the city boys could stroll to work. We're going to pick up this 20th century part of the story, the arrival of the Bangladeshi and other communities since the 1970s, as well as the way in which they've tried to make themselves at home, in our next walk. In the remainder of this one, we'll be looking at the earlier part of the story. How the East End has always been a magnet for migrants, how it has put them at the mercy of the market, and how the establishment has sometimes tried to make things better. So we're going to exit the park through the gateway we just mentioned on Whitechapel Road, continue just a hundred yards or so down the street. So we've walked just a 100 yards or so down the street. We're directly opposite the Allgate East Station, and above that we can see a sign saying the Passmore Edwards Library. Stopping here for a bit allows us to take a snapshot of Whitechapel in the second half of the 19th century, At that point, together with the areas closer to the river, which we explored in our first episode, and those further east, which we're going to see in our third, it's becoming identified as a separate, degenerate east end. There's poverty, there's deprivation, there's overcrowding. Not so much on the main roads, which we're on right now. These are still largely middle class, but in the small streets and alleys branching off it. In Whitechapel itself, there are 30,000 people in 4,000 houses, as well as 8,000 in only 200 lodging houses. In part, this is due to, and at the time it's often blamed on, immigration. It's a familiar story. This has an earlier history. The Jewish community is in London again, having been here in the medieval period, From the late 17th century, there's a Sephardi synagogue a little further into the city in 1701. There's an Ashkenazi synagogue in Allgate just down the street in 1722. By the middle of the 18th century, Jew baiting is becoming a sport for the local population. There are also Irish here being stereotyped as thieves. And there are attacks on Irish throughout the city, including Tower Hamlets, where we now are in the late 18th century. But then in the 19th century, there's a new wave of Jewish immigration. Poor East European Jews fleeing from pogroms and worse. The Jewish population here is 20,000 in 1850. It doubles by 1880 and then swells even further with this new wave of refugees. They build small synagogues, galleried halls over the yards behind terraces that we see around here. So immigration has a part to play. Also, though, the overcrowding is due to what's called improvement. What that means is the destruction of poorer neighbourhoods elsewhere, leaving less space for people to live in. Given the poverty, given the overcrowding, it, of course, attracts the gaze of the wealthier, which takes various forms. It ranges from dismissal. In 1873, the Bishop of London, no less, calls Whitechapel the worst district in London containing a large population of Jews and thieves, which might as well be one word in his mind. It extends through media voyeurism, which, of course, peaks with Jack the Ripper in 1888. Indeed, the fascination continues. Many tours in the East End focus on the six murders of the Ripper. I'd suggest reading From Hell by Alan Moore instead. There's also documentary concern. Whitechapel is already mentioned by Friedrich Engels in 1845 when he's talking about the working classes in England. Then, in 1902, after 20 years of much publicity... It attracts Jack London. He's a man from California. He's already been to Yukon for the gold rush. He's an adventurer and Whitechapel is the next frontier. In 1903, he publishes his experience as the people of the abyss.
1: The region my cab was now penetrating was one unending slum. The streets were filled with a new and different race of people, short of stature and of wretched or beer appearance. We rolled along through miles of bricks and squalor, and from each cross street and alley flashed long vistas of bricks and misery. Here and there lurched a drunken man or woman, and the air was obscene with sounds of jangling and squabbling. At a market, tottery old men and women were searching in the garbage, thrown in the mud for rotten potatoes, beans and vegetables, while little children clustered like flies around a festering mass of fruit, thrusting their arms to the shoulders into the liquid corruption and drawing forth morsels, but partially decayed, which they devoured on the spot. And as far as I could see were the solid walls of brick, the slimy pavements and the screaming streets, and for the first time in my life the fear of the crowd smote me. It was like the fear of the sea, and the miserable multitudes, street upon street, seemed so many waves of a vast and malodorous sea, lapping around me and threatening to well up and over me.
0: Beyond the dismissal, though, beyond the voyeurism, beyond the concern, the state of Whitechapel has already prompted attempts to ameliorate it. The state is moving very slowly. It always does. In 1834, there's a poor law, but it's largely about deterrence. Put the poor in workhouses, put them in industrial schools. They will become industrious citizens. By 1870, things have moved on a bit. There's an Education Act. We understand that elementary education, at least, is important. So in that period, it's private initiatives that fill the gap. In the 1840s, there are some early attempts to improve housing. These have a largely moral focus, providing model dwellings for small numbers of people. Soon enough, there are some more philanthropic endeavours, but these have a commercial intent. They promise 5% return on the investment, and so they need a certain more reliable class of tenant. There are also spiritual figures getting involved. William Booth famously begins his mission, preaching the gospel in a tent near what would become Whitechapel Station, where we began our walk. A few years later, he sets up the Salvation Army a little further down the road. The key figures, though, and the reason we're stopped here, are Samuel and Henrietta Barnett. Samuel's a priest. Henrietta has already worked on social housing with other colleagues. They get married. They move to Whitechapel in 1873, where Samuel becomes a local vicar. They get to work on education. They provide indoor relief, not outdoor relief, which would exacerbate the problem. In 1884, with friends, they start up the East End Dwellings Company to build more housing. And their efforts inspire others, leading to three buildings that remain today. The first one is the library, so-called, which we can see across the street. It's first built in 1891-92. It's in an elaborate Queen Anne style. And it's paid for and named after J. Passmore Edwards. It's the first of a number of free libraries he provides in London, an attempt to raise up the cultural level of the local population. Passmore Edwards also funds the building next door with the off-centre arch over the entranceway. This is the art gallery. It goes up in 1898-91. Henrietta's a prime mover here. She has friends like William Morris. She settles on a Ruskinian programme. Life without industry is guilt. Industry without art is brutality. The architect is a man called Charles Harrison Townsend. We'll meet him again just round the corner It's a kind of Art Nouveau pastiche, if you like. Up top, we can see there's a kind of empty space. It's got a bit of gold decoration now. Originally, this was meant to be for a mosaic, for a panel, which was going to illustrate art surrounded by labour, time, history, poesy, truth and beauty. Henrietta, though, takes exception to the fact that Passmore Edwards wanted to put his name on this building too, and so the funding stops. It's an incredibly important space. Some of the first exhibitions were of Chinese and Japanese art right at the turn of the 20th century. It exhibits Picasso's Guernica in 1938. It has important contemporary art shows in the 50s and the 60s. And then it comes back into prominence in the 1980s. The Whitechapel Gallery does so well, in fact, that it takes over the library in 2009. It now occupies both buildings. The library moves down the street and becomes the idea store. Finally, in 2012, we get the Olympics again, and Rachel Whiteread, a wonderful contemporary artist, creates this gold decoration that fills the empty space, a tree of life for the London Olympics. We have a library, we have an art gallery. To see the third of these institutions, though, we have to move on. As we do, we'll see how the efforts of the Barnetts are part of a larger story of the deprivation and improvement that have always seemed to accompany industrial development. We're walking just a little further down the street and crossing the road at the traffic light. We're heading for the alleyway next to the pub. It's called Gunthorpe Street. So we've crossed the street, we're heading under a wonderfully decorated archway, an art project from a local primary school in collaboration with some artists, and heading further down the street towards some red brick workshops on the right. On our left, opposite the workshops, we can see a tall building. This is Canon Barnett Primary School, named after the vicar. His church was right in front of this. It's now just an empty space. It no longer exists. We're continuing down the cobbled street. So we're coming to the top of Gunthorpe Street. We're turning left on Wentworth Street. Almost immediately across the road, opposite the pedestrian crossing, we can see an arch. This is the entrance to Flower and Dean Walk. It's named after two mid-17th century bricklayers. They're the ones who originally build up the area around here. But by the late 19th century, it's notorious for lodging houses, overcrowded lodging houses. There are 28 of those in 1882. And so a philanthropist comes to fix things. Lord Rothschild sets up the 4% Jewish Industrial Dwellings Company in 1885 to address overcrowding among the Jewish immigrants who are largely populating this area. And so an extensive slum is replaced by what an architectural historian calls austere, tall, close-set, six-storey tenement blocks. Those have now been demolished. The Toynbee Housing Association, who will meet in just a minute, replace them with what you see in front of you, a low-lying housing estate. We're continuing just a little further down the street, turn left down the first alleyway. We've come out the end of the short alleyway and we can stop here and sit in the courtyard of what is Toynbee Hall. It's named after a historian from Oxford University. He'd been visiting the Barnett since 1875. He worked on the idea of university extension, taking the university out of the colleges and into the streets. He died in 1883, but this hall opens the same year. It's intended as a residential settlement of university men And they're meant to carry out educational and social work in the East End. Originally, we couldn't see the street in front of us. Originally, it was tucked behind some warehouses, which created the impression of a college quad, if you like. There was an entry through a gatehouse, and then behind us, we have this kind of neo Tudor combination of a college and a manor house almost. There's a dining room with the shields of Oxbridge colleges on the ceiling, there's a lecture hall, there's a library. Over the years, though, this organisation has done enormously important work in the East End. There have been extensions in the 20th century. There was 21st century rebuilding along the street we've just passed down. And it continues to do important work today. But if we look across the street, we see something very different. This is Denning Point. We can see the name on the building, a glass-fronted tower block. But it wasn't always this way. This was 1960s social housing for the poor of the East End. By 2004, it's become one of the iconic places that journalists come to chronicle the deprivation at the beginning of the 21st century. In an exposé called No Go Britain, the BBC characterised this as 23 floors of poverty and misery with stairwells ruled by heroin users and prostitutes. It's a bit different now. 20 years later, it's private flats. They go for half a million a pop for 800 square feet. So we're gonna move on. We're gonna cross the street in front of us and go to the right of Denning Point. We've crossed the street, we've left Denning Point, new luxury apartments to our left. we come to the end of this pedestrian courtyard. Ahead of us in the distance, we can see the Gherkin now overtopped by other even taller buildings. Right in front of us, we've got a 1930s London County Council housing estate, five stories of brick. When we get to the end of the street, just glance left, you can see a grey building, arches on the second floor. And above it, you can see washhouses. Washhouses built in 1846. Only the facade remains. This is now part of London Metropolitan University. Beyond it, some warehousing with a bridge linking the warehouse to the building on the other side of the road. But we're turning right and heading to the end of this street. We're coming to the end of Old Castle Street. If we glance to our right, we can see a new cream development. Just a few years ago, this was old garages run down and so on. The pace of development is relentless. But at the end of the street, we're turning left and then taking the next right. So we've turned left, we're heading a short way down Wentworth Street. This is now part of Petticoat Lane, a famous clothing market. On our right we can see some clothing stores, fabric stores and so on. At the end of the street we can see a rather terrifying, brutalist council estate. This is actually the city of London building this estate in the 1960s. Beyond it we can see the skyscrapers of the city. But we're turning right on Bell Lane. We're walking up Bell Lane. We've got some more clothing stores on our right and then we've got a brick housing estate with Barnett House in the middle, again named after Samuel Barnett. We're turning right at the next corner onto Brune Street. So we're walking just a little way down Brune Street and we're going to stop in front of what we can see is a soup kitchen for the Jewish poor, an elaborate red brick and cream structure and elaborate arch in front. We've already got a sense of how the various layers are jumbled together in the present. But as we move from Whitechapel to where we now are, which is Spitalfields, it's a good place to stop and dig down and take the story back beyond the 19th century. Turning to our left at the end of the street, we have looming a gray, slightly blue, utterly ugly structure. It's private. When it was built not too long ago, it was the third tallest student dormitory in the world. It's been sold on to another company now who apparently offer a unique living experience for students from across the globe, allowing them to build a citywide community of friends and contacts, maybe if you don't know London well. Behind us, we've got the backside of the estate we just passed. This is the Holland Estate. This is the London County Council, 1927-36, Neo-Georgian slum clearance. But it remains good housing today. And then in front of us, the Jewish soup kitchen. Built in 1903, we can also see the Jewish dates, of very different calendar being used on the building. For one architectural historian, this creates a splendid effect that could be created in a philanthropic building whose function was mundane, but humane. It is an extraordinary piece of work, but of course it's not a soup kitchen now. It was turned into flats in 1997. Back in the early 20th century, it's needed though, because already in 1888, Bell Lane is known as one of many worst areas in London. There are 800 people living in an acre here. The average for the city as a whole is 50. It's also where you can find the Jews' free school. That was started back in 1732. It moved here in 1822, and by the end of the 19th century, there are 4,000 students. It's the largest Jewish school in Europe. They move away in 1939. They're now in Harrow. But the story doesn't start then, in the 1880s. We need to move to see the slightly earlier episode. We're going back in the direction where we came from. We're going to turn right on Tenterground. ground. You can see the street name on some three-storey warehouses just around the corner. So we've made our way down Tenterground, we're aiming for the strange triangular structure on the other side of the street. Turn left there, cross over and go down the street opposite, leaving the gateway which says women across the lintel to your right. So we've crossed the street and we've come just a little bit down artillery lane to where it bends round to our right. On our right we have what was originally built in 1860, a Roman Catholic Roman. convent of mercy and providence night refuge. Low-key gothic, it's got spaces for 300 women and children, 50 men, separate entrances which we saw as we came down the street Now you can see it's been turned to very different uses. On this corner we can see that only the facade remains and some new build is in back. These are in fact dormitories for students at the London School of Economics. Across the street though, a century before the need to provide refuge at night, we have two surviving 18th century houses. In some ways this is the beginning of retail in London. This is 56 and 58 Artillery Row. And we can see from the bulging windows coming out into the street, these are designed as shop fronts, the windows designed to put the silk on display. Already in the middle of the 18th century, therefore, according to Peter Leinbaugh, a wonderful historian, here was a center of worldwide experiences. People around the world were finding, quote, a place of refuge, of news, and an arena for the struggle of life and death. There's much more to say about Silk. We'll end our walk with it, and we'll also talk about what was here before it arrived. But to get there, again, we need to move on to see what's covered over its traces. Don't follow the street round to the right, though. Head instead for the narrow passage, artillery passage. Most of the shop fronts here are 19th century. There's a replica of a 17th century shopfront, too. It gives us a sense, though, of the scale of things that were here before things got really bad. <laughs> so we come to the end of the artillery passage. We've passed lots of restaurants. We've passed some bespoke tailoring, jewels, perfume, things like that. That's not what was there originally. But now we're turning right up Sandy's Row, And halfway up Sandy's Row, on our right, we have the Sandy's Row Synagogue. Originally not a synagogue, built as a French chapel in the 1760s, consecrated as a synagogue in 1870 for Dutch Ashkenazi Jews. Characteristically, the synagogue doesn't face the street. There are three stories for the officers, a caretaker's flat in front of the meeting room, which is behind, raised over a basement. We're going to continue to the end of this street, Sandy's Row, and then turn left. So we're just heading here up the continuation of Artillery Lane and already ahead of us we can see much larger building. This is the Broadgate development which we'll talk about when we come out at the end of the road. So we're coming to the end of Artillery Lane. You can already hear the traffic on Bishop's Gate. We're going to turn right here. We're outside the city walls. We have been for the whole walk. Originally, what's here is a religious foundation, typically, the Priory of St. Mary Bethlehem, founded in 1247. By the 15th century, it's an insane asylum. That moved west in 1676. Then, fast forward, the end of the 19th century, the railways come to town. If we turned left now, we would find ourselves at Liverpool Street Station, open in the 1870s, extended in the 1890s. That swept away housing for 7,000, exacerbating the problem we've seen earlier in the war. On our right now, as we walk up Bishopsgate, away from the city, we've got the Bishopsgate Institute, We've met the architect before. This, again, is Charles Harrison Townsend. He builds this just before the gallery. There are echoes of American architecture here. But also, interestingly, there is open public access to the bookshelves, an innovation, still today one of the best collections on East End history, well worth spending time. And across the street, we've got the massive Broadgate development. Come the 1980s, as finance is taking off, Architects, developers, realise there's an opportunity in spaces which are underused, the back of the station, for example, goods yards and so on. And so they put in place this, which is only the eastern edge of a massive office development. There's a series of courtyards behind it. It goes over the back of the rails leading out of town. It's impressive. Already, though, some of the buildings have been torn down. Digital finance requires a different kind of space. The thing we were doing back in the 80s. We're continuing up Bishopsgate and we're turning right on Spittle Square. We've turned right at the traffic light. We're now on Spital Square. We're stopped in front of the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings, which has a beautiful red door. Across the street, there's a bit of construction going on. A beautiful headquarters opportunity, apparently, with lots of terraces. Again, given the way that London develops, it can be hard to disentangle the threads. But this is as good a point as any to see how labour has been pulled into the city and how its composition has changed over time. Where we are now was outside the Roman Wall, so it was a good place for the Romans to bury their dead. One of their cemeteries was dug up in the 1990s. In 2013, a tooth was analysed. turned out to be that of a 25-year-old woman who'd been buried in a lead-lined stone sarcophagus in the middle of the 4th century. Fast forward a 1,000 years. In 1197, the new hospital of St Mary without... Bishop's Gate, outside Bishop's Gate, was built on the site. That lasted 300 years until it was dissolved by Henry VIII or under Henry VIII during the dissolution of the monasteries. Still at that point, though, what had been a monastery was surrounded largely by open land with fields and gardens and so on. So there was land available for the artillery to practice its manoeuvres, for tenter grounds where you would hang out textiles to dry after being dyed. We've seen these a little earlier in the walk. Artillery Lane, Artillery Passage, Tenterground. Ground. There were also rural retreats around this area. Then, in the mid-17th century, a date we know well by now, you're beginning to get development pushing out of the city, grid-type development, squares, roads, and so on. It's pushing east into the hospital's fields. So we're in spittle fields. Then came the Huguenots. 25,000 French Protestants arrive between 1685 and 1700. They've been pushed out of France by the Edict of Nantes, the French state turning around people who believe different things. They're poor, but they're skilled. Here, they catalyze the silk industry. They don't bring it with them, it already exists, but they give it the thing it needs to become a dominant force. Further west in Soho, they produce metal, they produce clocks. And so Spitalfields builds up. There are grand mansions on Bishop Square, just around the corner. There are smart terraces to the north and to the east. Further east, on the former tenter grounds, there are humbler homes. There are ten Huguenot chapels where they worship. By 1724, there are 200,000. By 1750, there are 500 master weavers operating where we now are on Spittle Square. 15,000 looms, 50,000 dependent locals. The booming silk industry in the early 18th century pulls in more labour. This time it's the Irish. In the 1730s, there's been a decline in the linen industry, their traditional occupational home, and so they move into silk. But at the same time, the industry here becomes more vulnerable. It's vulnerable to competition from French silk, which is picking back up. It's also vulnerable to new textiles which are coming in from South Asia, calicos and such like, lighter cloth, as the East India Company gets to work in South Asia. And so there are downswings in the 18th century. There are riots in the 1760s. At the end of them, an Irish and a Huguenot weaver are hanged in front of a pub in Bethnal Green to our east. We'll see Bethnal Green again in our next walk. In 1772, Parliament tries to rationalise the industry to drive the less skilled weavers out of town. The problem, though, is the way people are paid. It's piecework. You get paid by piece. There is no incentive for the people controlling the industry to adopt machines. There is no pay when times are bad. It only gets worse. By the early 19th century, things are getting really bad. There are foreign imports, there are factory processes, work is moving away. The merchant houses are becoming slums. By the 1830s, there are 10,000 or more unemployed. 6,000 are getting relief, there are more than 1,000 in poor houses. In 1860, a treaty allows even cheaper French silk to come in to the market. So the houses begin to be used differently. They're used for tailoring rather than weaving. This is the beginning of the East End rag trade. There are also new trades coming in, bootmaking and furniture, but there's also more competition for the jobs that there are with the Jewish refugees we've met before. By the late 19th century, Spitalfields is almost merging with Whitechapel in terms of its notoriety for crime and prostitution. Some of the slums are demolished. The market, which is just to our east here is rebuilt in 1883 and 93. Right next door to the Society for the Protection of and Buildings, we've got a very different kind of building. That's originally built for the Central Foundation School for Girls. They've been pushed out by the railways. They move here in 1892. They move out in 1975. A little bit to our south, a fruit and wool exchange is built in 1929. The amount of imported produce has doubled since World War I. But Spitalfields remains a poor neighbourhood into the 1960s. 90 out of the remaining 230 surviving earlier houses, 18th-century houses, are destroyed between the 1950s and the mid-70s. And then the preservationists get to work. Famously, the Spitalfields Historic Buildings Trust starts up in 77. The streets become fashionable, originally among artists and such like. Prices begin to soar, and soon enough... developers move in. Broadgate we've already seen was built in the 1980s. There's a huge fight over the market at the same time. It's closed in 1986. Eventually there's an agreement. The older part a little to our east again will be retained but then commercial buildings. These glass boxes we can see if we just glance to our left go up including Bishop Square where the grandest of the houses were. Here's an architectural historian. The baleful effect of this cannot be overemphasized and marks the continued and doubtless irresistible empire building of the City of London in place of the domestic and social needs of the East End. He wasn't wrong, but it didn't stop. The rebuilding continues to this day, as we can hear. One of the tricks of empire and of capital, of course, is to make it hard to see the labour on which both rely. We've tried to reveal its history in this walk. We've underlined the extent to which it was immigrant, and we've seen glimpses of the extent to which it was part of a larger colonial and post-colonial economy. We'll be returning to this story in the next episode, the last one in this walk, as we explore more of the 20th century history of Spitalfields and the neighbourhoods to the north and to the east. We'll also be trying to find out how its residents, fleeing poverty in the countryside, fleeing persecution in their countries and cultures of origin, struggling to make ends meet in this brave new world, how its residents have tried to make themselves at home. We'll start that story a little earlier, back in the 18th century when the neighbourhood is beginning to take shape, and a little west of here, in front of Christchurch Spitalfields. It was built to make the diverse community that was forming in these streets believe the same thing. We'll meet you there.
1: Historicity is written and presented by Angus Lockyer and produced by Jelena Sofranievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.